It's about finding someone who's got a property or some money. If we find a property for them, we'll look at the one they've got. What's the best design solution for the site? We spend a lot of time dissecting the site and engineering profitable design solutions. We've discerned there are three absolute truths in this space over the nearly 10 years I've been developing now. Because it can be subdivided, doesn't mean it's going to make any money. If we can't, we do the feasibility modeling and we can't put together a business case and get funding for it, well, you're going nowhere fast. Welcome to Perth Property Insider where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management, sales and buyers agency servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here's your host, Jared Mann. Hey, Anton. Thanks for joining us. I'm really looking forward to chatting about some of the opportunities and insights that you have in the development space. Hey, Jared. Yeah, thanks for having us. We are... Uh... Had a, had a coffee for the first time in a while a few weeks ago, and it's good to uh, yeah to be sitting in the recording room. I've been listening to the podcast for a while. So, Well, before we dive in, tell us a bit about your background and how you originally got into property, because we all, a lot of us don't sort of set out, you know, I want to be a project manager or involved in subdivision. You don't sort of, no one in year 10 at school goes and says that. Likewise, I don't say, I, don't, I, I want to be a real estate agent, so... <laughs> Yeah, sure, sure. I suppose what was my journey? I uh, I've got a um, construction background, and I suppose I really fell into this by accident. Really, did a lot of uh, building construction growing up into my twenties, and then went and studied construction management and economics at um, Curtin University. And at that time, we were doing some renovation flip stuff, mostly up in Kalamunda, up in the hills, those Murdy. And we hit a point in the market, sort of twenty twelve. 2013, where you you couldn't really add value to property fast that it was losing value. Yeah, it was hard. Yeah, factor in an end selling price, and you get there, and it's no longer at that point. Yeah, and like particularly, we were you know anybody that lives up in Calamunda, Lesmoody, it's one of these markets. I put it in the same basket as Apros and Ardross, where things are going well, it shoots up really quickly, but when things are going to shit, it falls really fast too. So yeah, we were in this position where that wasn't really working anymore, and. The question came about, you know, how else do you add value through property? And um, it was one of my Bobcat operators who was doing uh, a lot of little subdivisions. And we thought, well, um, how hard can this be? You know, well, yeah, you get in there, you, you get yourself a buyer's agent and you buy something based on development potential without doing any numbers. And um, of course, it's going to make money. And um, I think we scraped through and broke just about even and realized a whole heap of additional costs and Earthwork stuff, drainage, all sorts of all sorts of stuff went wrong. But that was great. It was a huge learning experience. So um, did you sell those or did you build on them or what did you end up doing with them? Uh, we ended up selling. We didn't build in the end. We just sold the block of land. We did just a battle axe subdivision. Um, so we did a renovation. That was obviously the forte part that we had. And we, yeah, we sold the front house for 300. We bought the whole thing for 389. Sold the front house for three fifty. Sold the back block for one hundred and seventy or one hundred and eighty. The odd, but by the time you added stamp duty and all the earthworks costs and fees and stuff, we we didn't make overall money. So if you only broke even on that one, what kept you in the game? And like, obviously now you you've come a long way. So yeah, I suppose it was uh, we employed a number of experts, let's say, to assist us through the process. And uh, there seemed to be lots of varied opinions about what to do and lots of people had the idea that that wasn't their responsibility and this isn't my scope and that's not their scope. And coming from a project management background, 
and working in you know large project client side project management at the time. I was I was on the Rain Square project at the time and also doing some project management at a large hospital. And I thought, well, there's an opportunity here. Let's take commercial grade project management skills and apply it to this small space, which uh, was woefully undersupplied with that, and also woefully undersupplied with the ability to find information all in the one place. I had to go searching high and low, I suppose, finding out what I actually had to do. Any first-hand subdividers out there who are listening at the moment will probably share my grief of receiving your first WAPC decision letter, your approval, and looking at it and going, what the hell does this all mean? And your surveyor just says to you, we'll go and sort it out, you know? So, um, yeah, there's an opportunity to provide information and, and project management help that wasn't there at the time. And that's how Subdivision Experts was born. So what do you, what sort of stuff do you actually get involved with and how could you actually help listeners? Sure. So I suppose the lion's share of our work is uh, two to five lot um, infill development. So uh, I focus mostly in blue chip areas, sort of B plus A grade suburbs. Still do a little bit of stuff in the, the outer suburbs, but that's mostly my focus. And it's probably more been because those inner areas have worked a bit better over the last few years as well and maybe with the outer areas picking up now you might start to see things stacking up a bit more in due course out there too yeah sure sure look and that's been the thing right because when the market was so flat and tanking a bit those areas yeah they didn't grow much but they didn't fall much either and particularly because i you know i do a bit of raising of of funds you know for investors and, and you know syndicate stuff and look for projects i need to be a bit safe with where i put the money so i'd rather raise a bit more and be in a better area and it's also they're just councils i've become very familiar with now so you know city of vincent city of sterling Melville, you know just a lot better at understanding their planning policies and regs and you get a feel for the place so yeah look i focus mostly on that two to five lot space and it's about finding someone who's got a property or some money and you know if we find a property for them or we'll look at the one they've got What's the best design solution for the site? You know, does it involve renovation, subdivision, building? One of them, all three, just two of them, whatever it is. We spend a lot of time dissecting the site and engineering profitable design solutions. That's our that's our focus. And I like that keyword profitable. So you're looking at you know creating a feasibility for the different scenarios and actually going into what is going to be most profitable from the beginning and preferably before someone buys the property. And if they've got it, you know, a lot of people end up developing and then as you did with your first one, working out that it wasn't actually worth doing and worth their time and there's a lot of hassles and and so it's best to work that out before you pull the trigger on it, I'd imagine. Yeah. Well look, we've we've discerned there are three absolute truths in this space over the nearly ten years I've been developing now. The first is that just because it can be subdivided doesn't mean it's gonna make any money. That's for certain. So we don't, we don't buy to anything based on development potential alone. The numbers need to tell the story. The second truth that's absolute is no money, no project. So if we can't, we do the feasibility modeling and we can't put together a business case and get funding for it, well, you're going nowhere fast. And the third absolute truth, which many people will share a sentiment of, was from building. We've discovered that box gutters will always leak on buildings. We're always going to have leaks. So those are the three absolute truths of development. True. I wasn't expecting the last one, but not working definitely as property managers attest to that being a regular. So. How much silicon, you you know, and they get the falls right, and every year this calls back, shit goes on. Just avoid box gutters, people, and junctions. It's just horrific. So uh, you'd obviously have a fair insight into where we're at 
as far as the overall building industry goes. What's your take on things at the moment? Pretty sort of turbulent time. Um, what are you saying? Well, the only people making money at the moment are tradespeople, and that would be, you know, we've just got with the government announced stimulus at the end of COVID there that brought forward, you know, four or five years of demand, and there simply is not enough labour. Material supply is getting better, but still mostly labour to deliver what's required. And we've seen the chaos is mostly around that, you know, builders are forced in this country to, for lending purposes, provide fixed price construction contracts. And they're mostly being held to ransom now for um, you know, delivering projects where they've priced in um, certain rates, but they can only get, you know, labour to do it at 50 to 100% more than that. So they're sitting on their hands, dragging their feet, um, or they're running a heap of loss making. Projects. And I don't know if that will happen, that come back. So it's certainly been a chaotic time. It costs more to build than ever. It takes longer than ever. Old build technologies, ways of doing things are just far too inefficient and slow. And, you know, you add to that, you know, a single story project, a build that would normally take six to nine months is now taking 18. That's coming back a bit. But, you know, there's people been sitting in the queue for years with that add compound interest effects over that period. You know, interest rates have gone up and threes up to sixes and sevens that it's really hurting out there and i guess what you mentioned with um contingencies are the builders having to if they still need to have a fixed price contract for lenders it must be hard to factor in what may happen and that probably blowing costs out a bit i'd imagine look absolutely and that's the thing we're seeing right so First of all, there's been there was no idea at some point of anybody who's still alive as a builder is going, well, look, I've got to factor in these high rates for my trades, but I don't know what's going to keep going up as well. So not only are they factoring in you know, higher rates, the margin goes on top, but the contingency for further escalation also goes on top of that. So you know, we've seen a, a 30 to 50% increase broadly across the board of the cost to construct and a doubling of the time frame to deliver that over the last two or three years. But the, the values, unfortunately, just haven't followed suit. And that's the real reason why, you know, a lot of deals just aren't stacking up. So that, that's been the issue. Now, we had the new medium density R codes released, and we actually recorded a podcast a few weeks back, didn't we? So we're going to talk through those changes and how we can make the most of them and take advantage of them. What are the, where are we actually at with the medium density R codes now? And since we, spoke <laughs> or sure. so um yeah look we we recorded a podcast a few weeks ago i was actually in bali indonesia i was on holiday i was sitting on the beach having a coconut and watching the sunset my phone was popping off and i was like what's going on here and there's all these people hitting me up you know there's uh, have you seen the announcement the news have you seen the news and uh yeah look we've seen that after nearly four years of development actual pass into into statute into law so deferred gazettal of framework it's been put on pause again what was the statement? In the, I think in the media statement, it was something like after further consultation with industry stakeholders, that they decided to put it on pause again for fear that it's going to, I suppose, slow further housing supply as people navigate the planning process at the front end. And there's, look, I've got some very mixed opinions about all of that, but the reality is we, well, there's a large number of us that geared ourselves up to um, align our strategies with what we could do in medium density, which if you spent your time looking through, it was actually quite exciting. There was lots of dwelling diversity and things to do in there. So we're all aligned for that. A lot of local councils had as well. Certainly Joondalup and Coburn were early adopters. And most of the large councils, including Stirling, said any DAs you submit from July, sorry, from June 1, we expect to be aligned with code. So 
there's a bit of limbo there as to what's going on with all of that. You know, some of us have even gone and bought properties based on what we thought we could do. And now we're sort of, we're waiting to see, well, it's, it's, uh, we've been informed that the good Minister Kerry will probably be providing us an update in the next two weeks. There'll be some sort of announcement around what media density will look like. And my understanding is that it's going to be focused mostly on R50 and R60 coding, but there is still an appetite in those places. Yeah, the higher ones, not the R30s and the R40s, which is a bit of a shame because a lot of our strategy modelling was focused around what we can actually do with the, the small 500, 600 square metre you know, R30, R40 sites and do, you know, small and accessible dwelling typologies on those. It was actually modelling up quite well. So for the time being, that seems to be withdrawn and there'll be some announcement in the coming weeks around what the future forward looks like. But I'll, I suppose we just have to wait and see what's announced, what the intention is. I imagine there'll be further rounds then of consultation and all that sort of stuff. And we'll see what comes out of that and hopefully the response is fast enough. So that's where we're going to sit. I feel like there's probably the largest amount of pushback may have been from, you know, large project builders who are not particularly geared to deal with this level of sort of bespoke design in estate planning, and that probably would have slowed down their design development and, and production of housing. So it may be that a better approach, and I'll see what they do in terms of consultation here, is we, you know, we have a we have a code framework that perhaps is more focused on the existing infill areas and something that's completely different for you know for new estates and that sort of thing. There was a grandfathering clause, but I don't know if the two planning ecosystems, for want of a better word, are actually are actually really capable of functioning the same way. But we'll see. Yeah, okay. And I guess a lot of this also has to do with in the background we had our state premier step down, um, Buck Gowan, and his replacement came into office quite recently and I believe um, the planning minister Kerry is quite new to his role as well within the last two to three months. So obviously they're stepping in and coming into their own and deciding what they're going to do. It's almost like we've had a change of government even though the government's still labour and still the same. So I think that's kind of prompting both the medium density R codes to be looked at and we've also seen other things put on hold potentially for the um, Aboriginal Heritage Act from what I've seen. Look, it's a pretty, it's an interesting time. I suppose I feel like from my objective, sit back and look, I can see that perhaps there were some legacy issues under the last government. Mark stepped aside and um, poor old Roger Cooks had to come in and we didn't even see the bus coming and he's straight under it. So I feel a bit sorry for him in that regard, but um, there's some fairly drastic changes in terms of you know, some pauses and have a look at some policy intention. It is interesting, you know, things like the Aboriginal Heritage Laws, you know, that was sort of in a development phase, you know, and we've, we're going for consultation and this is coming. I, I found that quite, so that, you know, that got scuttled to the bottom of the ocean. But I, I'm sort of concerned now, but because, you know, that was a bit of a different process to the MD codes, because the MD codes was four years in production. That had actually been passed into law, you know, this here's the gazette, this is happening, you know. So we, I don't think we've ever been in this sort of situation. Talk about a knee jerk, yeah. Well, you know, I get ghosted by tradespeople on sites. I get ghosted by women going on dates and I've been ghosted by the government is the way I put it. So that's a total erosion of trust to me. And there's nothing to say if they've done this once, they won't do it again. So I'm not trying to be negative about it, but I you know, would really want some assurances going forward because there's, you know, there is a large number of consultants and I imagine some large buyers agency firms as well 
shall know for a fact that we're on a, a good little buying spree in this past period based on what they could do in this framework and you know that we're left with egg on our face so it's it's an interesting precedent to set and whether it actually addresses the problem of housing shortage well that's ultimately what we're trying to solve isn't it and it all this seems to be con- further contributing to uncertainty well it, it does yeah the sentiment yeah so and that's that's really something that you know i've seen a lot of posts going you pee you know i can uh, thank goodness that was all scrapped and you know i can get back to buying r40 sites again and comments like this but i go to people well okay well there's your old framework back go get that 750 square meter r40 site in warwick still look at it the same well wait a minute the cost base hasn't changed. The end values haven't been shifted. The money's still expensive. So the sites still don't stack up. So all that's happening was we've still only got the same drab smorgasbord of, you know, shitting house, shitty housing outcomes to produce. And the underlying issues that are really causing the problem, you know, the cost of labor and mature shortages and period time to construct, you know, general efficiencies in the, in the, in the system for construction, those are the real issues that are the problem. And I feel like the poor old MD codes were just used as a scapegoat, just a convenient thing to to hopefully think this will fix the problem. But in reality, it's got very little to do with the price of milk, for want of a, a better word. And it actually was the opposite. It actually provided us a lot of opportunities to unlock affordable housing ideas on, on smaller lots in broad areas of suburbia. So I think it was a very knee-jerk reaction from an incoming you know, new policy team. What happened behind closed doors in terms of any political lobbying or whatever to push that? Who knows? Is anyone's guess? But it was a, a big about. Yeah, look, we, this is still what we've got and we have to adapt and deal with it. So, and that's where we're at at the moment. You touched on a lot of existing sites not being profitable under the existing framework. And I know from our coffee chats and what we spoke about last time, which we didn't end up releasing uh, on the show we're creating a lot of you know solutions for for development that did stack up in this market like what do you think investors should look to do you know now when things are a bit up in the air uh, we've got the two potential ways things can go and it's, you know what is what does someone do if they do want to sort of progress the development what are your thoughts at the moment so look for us at the moment we're in we're proceeding with anything that's sort of built to rent, you know, where we're sitting at, you know, very much close to break-evens or, you know, very low returns, 8, 9, 10%, where we might pick up a triplex site, very much stick to a single-storey building. You wouldn't touch two-storey with a, with a 10-foot pole at the moment until there's some more efficiencies in that space. And where we might go, you know, we'll do a couple of builds on that site and maybe offload one of them to bring down the, the debt gearing on it. And then the two or three, you know, remaining prop lots you've got on the, on the strata complex would achieve you a pretty reasonable rent yield. You know, you're probably five, six, seven percent net by paying down the debt. And realistically, that's the only thing we can make to work terribly well at the moment. I've still got, you know, some ideas about what we can do doing medium density without medium density code being active. But I really want to I need to wait the next couple of weeks and see what the new policy direction is from the state government and move accordingly. So what I'd advise to people to do is don't think that medium density is dead. But you'd want to see what the new policy direction is. It's still going to lean on the design WA framework. So there's, you know, 10 design or elemental objectives in that we want to lean into. But let's see how they want to achieve that and in what areas. And once you've got that framework released, it's really going to be a go of sitting down with it and going, well, which local governments, you know, is it Town of Vic Park? Is it it City of Stirling? Is it Joondalup? Who's actually broadly 
still in support of some sort of good medium density planning outcomes and which which local councils can I work with you know creatively and collaboratively in a in a expedient time frame to actually achieve some outcomes here and that's what I'd that's what I'd be watching you know quite quite carefully well I like how you're always looking through to what practically stacks up and is going to be met by the market and what the councils actually can get behind as well so that makes a big difference look it, it does and it's you know for example I'll um you know I'll fly the flag the city of Coburn in this instance you know the sorts of small dwelling outcomes that the medium density code wanted to achieve by way of their own planning policies and scheme provisions they've been flying that flag for a couple of years anyway universal access and greater mixes of habitable bedrooms provided you meet certain access standards and this sort of stuff so they were you know already and we're seeing that in real time you know in Coolville up and Hamilton Hill there's a great diversity of dwelling types there's lots of two-bedroom homes and small accessibles and that's already allowed for in framework so just because medium density is in conundrum in at a state government level doesn't mean that some local governments aren't just getting on with it and providing opportunity to provide more, more diverse housing. And to, to me, diverse and affordable housing, housing go hand in hand, and that's where the battle's going to be. The fastest growing household statistic in Australia is the single person household, you know, or, or a young couple that never have a kid, you know. There's a larger growing demand for that. Especially with a lot of the downsizers wanting to change out of there'd be homes and what stay in the same sort of areas and that's it you know and not everybody's got millions you know lots of money in super you know they'll they clear their get rid of their house pay down some debts and there's there's going to be under 500k left well they want a caravan and somewhere to live and how do you provide that sort of housing stock to them you know and that's really a consideration and we definitely spoke last time about the gap in the market at the moment that you're talking about that there's a lot of sort of higher density that will continue to get created with the big apartment complexes and other things and but that doesn't suit a lot of people that are buyers does it yeah well that, that's right you know it's um i mean let's go look into north perth i think it was an example we spoke about last time you know you can go buy a townhouse in there for 1.2 to 1.4 a three better and you know uh, then you can buy an apartment down oxford street or something for you know six hundred thousand or whatever and there's not really anything in between you know, there's no, um, you know, what's a small two and three better, a single story dwelling? What does that look like? And it was things like that that medium density afforded us the opportunity to produce as accessible or small dwellings. And that just provides that missing middle, you know, something that if the apartment was five to 600,000 and the townhouse is, you know, 1.2 to 1.4, we can produce, you know, a small single story home in there for, you know, and sell that for a high six, 700. It's a missing middle in product type. It's it's not an apartment complex. You know, you can have your the downsizer doesn't have to do stairs. The young couple have somewhere for the dog to run around and probably get them through their first kid. And it just gives them the better postcode and the better area. And that's the sort of outcomes we look to achieve in these um, you know, gentrifying uh, inner city areas that I think medium density was really exciting for and, and was able to do for us. And I'm sure there'll be an iteration of code change where we can keep doing that. Yeah, it may just happen more gradually and take some time for them to solve it and get industry on board. And look, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it was just, I suppose, a bit of a, a bit of a shock and a bit of a disappointment. It happened, but it is what it is now. So, yeah, look, I just advise people to sit tight for the next couple of weeks and see what the government has got to say and look at the timeframes they're proposing and uh, you adapt accordingly. And what do you think's ahead for 
development in Perth over the next one to two years. So we're not going to hold you to it because we know how rapidly things are changing. But what do you sort of what's what's your best case scenario and and a worst case maybe? Um, look, the best case is what we're seeing now is that you know in four to six months' time, we'll be honest about this. Whichever builders are going to go bust are going to go bust. There'll probably be quite a few more that hit the wall between now and Christmas. So if they survive this, they're going to be okay. Yeah. We also, we, we kind of need this phase to, to wash through as well because the, that's the other factor with buyer's confidence. You know, they don't want to be the ones that having their builder go bust and imagine the disruption and heartbreak that happens when that occurs. Look, that that's true, you know. And I mean, for most people, you, you can't deny it. You know, whatever you're seeing on a current affair is true. There's a lot of builders going bust. A lot of them are in financial trouble. And a lot more that are probably doing the poker face game, just signing people up every week in full knowledge that they're pretty much insolvent. So look, it's going to be a period of of letting that play out. Whoever whoever's still around after that will be, you know, galvanised pretty hard, and they'll be they'll be efficient, effective operators. Um, they'll be good to deal with. So we watch that finish up in the next little period. We're going to watch then. We're ready at the moment. See that the um, the dwelling approvals, so building permit issues, are down at some of their lowest on record. So. We're down at, you know, sub a thousand approvals a month, you know, and in March 2021, I think it was, we're up at February, March, we're at peaks of 26, 2700 build permit approvals. So to, in today's terms, we're at less than a third of, or nearly a third of the, the building approvals. So it means in the forward pipe, there's going to be a third of the volume of work in the domestic market. And it's another market that's susceptible to supply and demand. If there's way less supply of, of jobs, then there is you know, the labour that can meet it, well, then the rates for work only can go down, you know. So that's what I can see in 12 months from now. Well, that's the ironic thing. There's probably lots of demand that would occur if there wasn't the perceived bottleneck, but the middle ground is going to be that these trades aren't going to have as much work because there's not as much coming in approval and in the pipeline. So, but I guess that depends what the local government might do as well with their projects because I understand they've got a lot on pause. Yeah, look, and that's the other thing in this. I go, okay, well, look, at, let's look at that ecosystem you know, in isolation. That might even out. But, yeah, there'll be lots of, you know, school project upgrades and big civil stuff that I'm pretty confident that a lot of the government agencies have put on pause to not put more of a drain on labour. There's certainly the mining industry. They'll have a lot of construction projects that at the moment have just been sitting on pause because rates have been too high. So as soon as things claw back a bit, you know, it just takes a couple of big civil projects or even some large land subdivisions to get through planning again, and we're sort of back to where we started. So the underlying issue is still the labour, and it's just about where you can you can attract that to. And that's the issue we're trying to solve, and it's the million-dollar question is, you know, well, we need housing here for the labour to live in. We need to get the labour here as well. Where do they live? You know, it's sort of the uh, snake eating its own tail. So I don't know, folks, go and buy shares in a swag company, you know, I I don't know what we do in the interim period. It'll be ten sitting around the place. Concerning as to how it's solved, but Yeah. Look, I, I was having this conversation the other day with a few people that broadly speaking, whether it's whether it's population in general in terms of their attitude to housing or whether it's the, the builders and their subcontractors, what we have in this country at the moment most is not a housing crisis, we have a humanity crisis. And I see that the way people behave towards each other. You know, there's no respect, there's no rapport anymore. There's no loyalty between trades and their builders. If somebody robs them tomorrow and offers them a $1,000 bonus, they're gone. So there's there's none of the relationships are not sustainable. 
So there's no humanity there. It's just us first them and who can we rip off and and then of course when things go the other way again the builders were busy ripping the um, tradespeople off. So those relationships are pretty shot. And then likewise in terms of housing, you know, the number of vacant or empty houses in this country or people living in a large four house four bedroom house, you know, they're FIFO just rent out a room or two. You know, I'm very much um, with the outgoing governor on that. You know, there's actually more than enough here for most people to to live. And for the short period of time until we stabilise housing supply again, maybe people just don't be so selfish for a period and open the door a bit. You know, it's um, that's also part of being Australian. Well, at least a lot of people are thinking about it, and I have to land on the optimistic side that solutions will be found. That's the beauty, I guess, of our market, where when there's demand for something, there's incentive to create solutions. So. That's how the market forces work. So, doesn't help where we're in the limbo in the meantime, though. <laughs> it is, it is. And look, it still will be, you know, innovation from you people like you and me, private industry that will come up with the best solutions for this. And um, we're seeing that now, you know, there's lots more boarding and rooming house stuff coming online, people just subletting rooms, you know, all these, these low cost build to rent model stuff. I see a lot more innovative technology coming into building now to speed things up. So yeah, that's all adapting very, very fast. I suppose it's it's a, a, a slow amount of adaptation that would have been nice if it started 10 years ago. Now we're just doing it very fast and aggressively. But um, that always seems to be the way in government. It's always been that way. Yes. <laughs> so if someone has an existing property or they're thinking of buying something, what's your normal process and how can you, like, how do you typically get involved? Or we'll chat to them about what's possible. Yeah, sure. Well, like I, I usually just have an initial consult with someone as the first thing I do. Let's just have a meet and greet and a chat around their objectives. We need to establish their intent very early on of what they want to do. Is it built rent? Is it built to sell? Both have remarkably different consequences for tax and for lending. And it behoves us to have those discussions so we can plan appropriately. Build a couple of um, couple of models for their site they have, if they own it or a hypothetical one in question. I've got to understand what they can actually afford to do. And we drive strategy that way as opposed to that was the money um, factor that you mentioned. Yeah, let, let, let the spreadsheet, let the Excel tell the story and that guides what we're going to buy or what we're going to do with an existing site. You know, I've, I've got a client in Riverton or, you know, she's still shocked, you know, when we, we did the feasibility study that we're going to build three, we were building three villas, you know, small villas on the site as built to rent. The yield was great and that was the best return on investment, the best bang for her buck circumstantially. And couldn't get ahead around the fact that, you know, why am I building townhouses, you know, because big is better and it isn't always better. The maths didn't tell that story and here we are, we're, we're still delayed, but we're closer to finish and there's, you know, two-story builds next to us that started before us and they're still a year away from being finished. So, you know, that's that's the difference, right? Let's We need to circumstantially look at what's best for you and your site and what's going to give you the return you want based on the strategy for you. And that doesn't always mean we're going to, you know, build the site out to the to the max degree. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll put your details in the show notes. People can reach out. And with this landscape changing so rapidly, we'll have to get you back on again uh, when things the dust settles a bit more. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Look, it's, let's keep an eye on it, and it'll be an exciting few months ahead. So, yeah, thanks for having us. Awesome. See you, mate. Thanks. Bye. Just a reminder: the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature. As we don't know your specific situation, you should always seek professional advice before taking any action. For free market reports on your suburb of interest, 
and other helpful resources to grow your wealth, make sure you join my property investor update at investorshedge.com.au slash join. And finally, make sure you're a member of our Perth Property Investment Facebook group to be part of the conversation with other like-minded investors, get help to your questions, and get a feel for what's going on out there in the market. I'll see you in the group. Thank you.